I had this magic mushroom experience. I was sitting here just on the beach. I was listening to minimalist music and the rays of the sun were reflecting off the water and you had these fantastic hallucinations superimposed. Everything slowed down until I thought I arrived at the center, at the, at the beating heart of the universe. And I finally understood, I understood how it all works. But it's ineffable. Afterwards, you have great difficulty explaining it. Neuroscientist Christoph Koch shares his experience of taking a psychedelic trip with magic mushrooms in AWARE, Glimpses of Consciousness, a new documentary that delves into deep questions about the workings of the conscious mind. AWARE focuses on the scientific and spiritual quest to understand the nature of consciousness and apply that understanding in the lab as well as in our daily lives. It's a quest that Christoph has been on for decades, and in this episode of the Fiction Science Podcast, he brings us up to date on his journey and shares his view of the road ahead. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, your host for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. Join me and Christoph Koch as we take a trip to the frontiers of neuroscience. What is consciousness? That's a question that goes back at least as far as Aristotle and René Descartes, and could well go back to the origins of the human species. In the documentary film Aware Glimpses of Consciousness, filmmakers Frauke Sandig and Eric Black turn to biologists and neuroscientists as well as Buddhist monks and a Maya healer for their perspectives on that age-old question. One of the stars of the show is Christoph Koch, who heads up the MindScope program at the Allen Institute in Seattle. Christoph is directing an effort to map the living circuitry of the brain in unprecedented detail, but he's also involved in experiments aimed at developing a device to measure levels of consciousness based on patterns of brain activity. He's even experimented with psilocybin, the hallucinogenic ingredient in magic mushrooms. I talked with Christoph about his psilocybin trip as well as his work on the so-called conscious meter, his theories about the conscious mind, and whether animals, plants, and computers could possibly be conscious. But we started out discussing how the filmmakers persuaded him to participate in the documentary in the first place. What I get out of these interviews and podcasts and, and, and films is that is that when people ask questions from an angle I haven't considered before, I haven't thought about before, and they did, that's what makes it sort of interesting for me. And what was it like to be a movie star? Oh, you know, if the, <laughs> uh, you know, you just uh, try not to think about that aspect because then you get nervous and you become very self-conscious and you, you know, repeat things. You just uh, sort of tune all that out, just listen to the question and try to just focus on that question, the immediacy of it so that you can, you know, so it can be spontaneous and it doesn't look like it's it's fake acted because I'm not a, obviously not a professional actor, which is a talent that, you know, which is a highly rarefied talent that I don't have. Were there any skills that you've developed as a neuroscientist that uh, came into play as you were working with the filmmakers? 
Yeah, I mean, communication. So I used to be the president of the Allen Institute, which is, you know, 350 uh, scientists, engineers and staff focused on the brain. And so there it's really important to to communicate clearly, concisely uh, and consistently. So that's a skill you can use um, also when when um, in films or in other in other venues. One of the topics that comes in for a fair amount of time during the movie Aware has to do with psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. And during the movie, you mentioned your own experience with magic mushrooms. Can you tell me more about that? The when, the where, the how, the why, and how it all turned out? Well, they truly are magic in the sense that you lose somewhat your sense of self, your, you know, that constant nagging voice in your head that reminds you of all your inadequacy and the things that you still haven't done, etc. And you can be out there in the world. So it's sort of an enhanced mindfulness. You're really in the world, of the world, and you fo- and you're entirely directed outward at all the wonderful, you know, foliages. I was in nature, you know, you, you see all the wonderful foliages, shimmering light, the, the translucent shimmering, uh, you know, movement of the leaves and the canopy. You feel you can hear the, the heartbeat of life itself. It's quite a magical experience. It takes you back into early childhood, you know, when when um, when there was much less self and you just experienced the novelty and the sheer beauty of the world. So in that sense, it can be completely overwhelming. So it's um, it's one of the most positive experiences I've um, I've had in my life. Did you approach it as a scientific experiment, or was it a totally a subjective experiential experience for you? I think you can do both in the sense that you, I am an experienced subject, as you are. That's what consciousness is. It's it's feelings. It's it's seeing and hearing and sensing and feeling in love or upset or angry. But you can then also try to analyze that, particularly after the fact, and analyze it and what you take from that. What what is it, uh, for instance, what is it that psychedelics can teach us? What is it other types of drugs that are chemically very related, like 5-MeO-DMT, which is also known as the toad or the god molecule, or DMT or psilocyne? These are all variants of this of very similar drugs called serotonergic um hallucinogens, they act on similar places in the brain and what they can teach us about consciousness. And in this case, what they can teach us about consciousness that that the self is just one aspect of consciousness, which in adults, particularly in literary adults, it seems to dominate. In fact, many people primarily think of consciousness, they think about self-consciousness, the fact that I know I'm a man, I know I'm going to die one day, I know what I have for practice, etc. But then what, what these what these drugs remind us of that much of our life, you know, when, so I was rowing this morning, it was a very intense, we're in a race, you know, then during that race, you get into the state of flow, which is another, you know, related state where again, the sense of self is sort of really at an ebb at a minimum. And you are all out there. It's a wonderful experience. You're fully engaged with the world. You're hyper conscious of the position of your, you know, the rows and the angles and the water and the set of the shell and all of that. Um, but, but there's very little consciousness of self. And typically these states are sort of, we really enjoy these states. We want to return to these states of flow, of, of, of ego dissolution or of, um, of uh, uh, psilocybin or of meditation, or there are many other ways to, to induce them. And for certain drugs, when you take them at a high enough doses, it can be so powerful that the enti- that your entire body, not only your sense of self, your sense of being Christoph, your sense of being a person, 
but you, even your the, the feeling of even having a body or even the feeling of there being a world, all of that can disappear in these extreme cases when you take a heroic dose. Yet you can, you're still highly conscious. And very often this is associated with states of ecstasy or states of fear, of terror, or a combination of, of ecstasy and terror. Sometimes you only see sort of a, you know, a bright light and there's no, absolutely nothing else. Sometimes people have very intense um, you know, a replay of, um, of their lives. Yet what's remarkable in all of these states, the self is gone and very often the external world is gone, yet you're highly conscious. I think you mentioned in the movie that you were uh, sitting on a beach as you went through this experience. Were you by yourself or did you have someone who was, uh, I don't know. A guide. A, 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 a guide. guide, yes. A guide, yeah. I think it's good to do it with other people and or to have to have a guide there that can that can you know help you through the experience and integrate it into your life. So it's it's all the you know as you may know there are fifty five different clinical trials right now for for various uh, psychiatric um, conditions in which psilocybin is used. One or two trials of psilocybin for let's say treatment resistant depression, major depression disorder, post traumatic stress disorder, cancer related anxieties alcoholism, et cetera, et cetera, it's always in combination with the therapist. So it's never alone. It's always in combination with the, with the uh, therapist. And then when, when it's interesting, when you go back into the historic origin of things like magic mushrooms or related substance, they were, of course, always taken together with a priest, you know, or a shaman, you know, so there was always a, a more experienced person, a man or woman who had experiences and who guided you through that, who helped you. And most importantly, who helped integrate this experience, which can be very unusual, particularly for some of these other drugs. It can be extremely uh, unusual. And if you don't know what it is, it could be, you know, you could be an abject terror to help you integrate those into, into your life. So we, we are in the modern world rediscovering what people, indigenous people, particularly here in, in, in America, in South America, Middle America, or the, the, South, uh, the Southwest here in the U.S., knew already, you know, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago that we are now rediscovering. The Seattle City Council recently passed a resolution calling for the enforcement of laws against psilocybin possession to be deprioritized. It's not exactly legalization, as some news reports may have made it out to be. But do you think that legalization is the way to go for these sorts of um, drugs or medications? Look, it's an interesting question. So first of all, what, what might happen once some of these drugs get approved and pass clinical phase three trials and get approved by FDA, always together with the therapist, then you can go to your doctor and he can prescribe it off-label. So you can tell your doctor, you know, I feel slightly depressed, whatever. And then the doctor can say, yeah, so we'll give you two doses of the stuff together with a, with a therapist. And I think that's, that's a great boon. I really believe that these drugs properly done have extremely low risk profile. They, they're non-addictive. They're definitely non-addictive, both in animals and in um, and in in humans, partly because they don't tap into the dopamine system. So they're very different from from opioids or from cocaine or things like that. Um, the uh, um, you can't kill yourself on these drugs. The, the lethal dose is is so high you you can't ingest as much stuff. 
Um, the, the main risk is if you're uh, young and you're prodromal schizophrenic, so you have a tendency, let's say you have a first, um, you have a, a close relative that has schizophrenia. That is the, the primary exclusion criteria because it can trigger major psychotic disorder. So that's why I think one, need, one needs to be careful. This is not candy. This, you know, this, this is a psychoactive substance. On the other hand, we also remember you can freely buy anyone who's over 18 can buy a bottle of vodka, you know, where you can really do terrible damage to, to yourself, not even talking about smoke and, you know, and, and all the other stuff. So relative to that, I think it's a, it's a relatively minor risk. But there is some risk, and so one has to control it. We know much less what happens in adolescence. So almost all the research is done on, on, on uh, you know, people who are 18 or older. So again, there one has to proceed with, uh, with caution. But, it's, you know, drugs isn't drugs isn't drugs. One really has to differentiate with drugs. And we, we as culture have learned to live with alcohol uh, for thousands of years. And there's no reason why we can't integrate these, by and large, extremely beneficial uh, drugs, in particular for amelioration of all sorts of conditions that otherwise we don't know how to treat. It's really fascinating that consciousness is at the intersection of subjective experience and objective scientific study. And at the Allen Institute, you really concentrate on the objective mapping of the brain. I know this is a big project at the Institute, is mapping the wiring of the brain in nanoscopic detail. Uh, how far can that approach take scientists when it comes to understanding consciousness? Is it possible for those sorts of strategies to meet up with the subjective experience of consciousness in altered states? Yes. Ultimately, I believe the human mind is capable of understanding consciousness and its origin and who has it and doesn't have it in a, in a, in a rational way. Um, there's no reason not to. So, for example, I focused on the footprints of consciousness in the brain because that's something, as you mentioned, that's objective. So I can put you in a magnetic scanner. I can do the same thing with, you know, closely related animals like monkeys or, or um, mice, and I can study the footprints of consciousness, and then I can see, do they happen in a, in a, in a fetus? Are they already present in a, you know, 14-week-old fetus? What happens in an end-stage uh, dementia? Um, you know, how far uh, down does it go, the evolutionary scale? So so you can certainly, bit by bit, so for example, I'm now involved in a, ma a major effort to build what's called a conscious meter, a device that tests. Let's see, a patient comes into the ICU uh, involved in a heavy car accident. The patient is non-responsive, you know, and you wait a day or two, the patient is still responsive. He's clearly alive. He's on life support and ventilator, et cetera. Occasionally he might groan or move, and you keep on asking, Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith, are you there? If you hear me, can you move your eyes? Can you lift your finger, whatever? And they don't do it. How do you, so then the, the, the big dilemma is that the question that all his, love, his or her loved ones immediately ask is, Mr. Is my dad? Is he there? And the second question is, will he recover? Right now, we, we don't have a good way of measuring whether that person is unco truly unconscious or whether they're conscious but locked due to the damage, due to the trauma inside their body, so they're unable to respond. Right now, we're developing a whole bunch of clinical, um, a clinical team, this procedure where essentially you knock on the brain using a magnetic pulse and you measure the reverberation and you can look at, you can look at the complexity of the EG and you can decide based on the complexity, if it's complex, the patient is likely conscious, or they, he might not respond. If it's low complex, the patient truly isn't there. 
So again, this shows this shows progress on this very old mind-body problem. So we are not forever condemned to walk around in an epistemic fog where we shall never know. I think that's a defeatist attitude that some philosophers have that I don't share as a scientist. Yes, you mentioned the consciousness meter in your book, The Feeling of Life Itself, but it sounds as if you are taking that uh, experimental strategy to new heights. Uh, any uh, updates, like what's the latest that you found? Yeah, so, so you know, so, so we are now uh, in a variety of, of clinics um, uh, testing this. So far, it's being used as diagnostic tool to tell whether the patient is conscious or not. There even now maybe some evidence to suggest you can even use it as a prognostic tool. In other words, depending on the presence or absence of EG and the complexity of that, you might be able to prognosticate is this because that's the next question everyone wants to know. You know, is my dad going to come back or is he forever, you know, going to remain in this state? Uh, and that's very important because that very often has direct consequences for withdrawal of care. Right? If you're being told your dad will never come back, that's something radical different in its implication. Then, yeah, you know, your dad has a reasonable chance of of, uh, of recovering. It's one of the key determinants of withdrawal of care or not. So this is really an important problem for which right now we don't really have a solution. And so once again, it shows that you can make progress on these uh, on these problems involving a very difficult challenge. Because I mean, why is consciousness challenging? Because you can't observe directly my consciousness, and I can't observe your consciousness. In fact, I don't even know. I, strictly, logically speaking, I don't know your conscience. Right? I assume you're conscious. Why? Well, because you have a skull. I assume the skull is not filled with air or water, but filled with the brain. Similar to me, I could actually test it in an MRI scanner. We are evolutionally closely related. You behave very similar to me, etc. So therefore, we make the the, the inference um, that you're conscious, a baby's conscious, my dog that can speak but behave similar to me, and you know, I can infer something about about the state. This inference, but it's it's always an inference. You, in the ultimate analysis, you never know. So that's made consciousness more challenging to study than just, let's say, a COVID virus or a black hole. Because a black hole and a COVID virus are fully characterized by their external properties. You know, how infectious is it? How much does it bind to the ACE receptors? How, how big is the black hole? What's its event horizon, etc.? Consciousness has this interior aspect, right? It feels like something to be a brain. This feeling, this is what, what is the feeling of life itself. That is a challenging question. How does this feeling, because if you look at quantum mechanics, if you look at general relativity theory, if you look at chemistry, you know, if you look at the endless ATGC chat of our gene, nowhere there are feelings. Yet every day you wake up and you're feeling. So where do the feelings come from? And in the film, uh, the this question about detecting consciousness is uh, even more complicated because uh, it focuses on some researchers who are looking at the potential for plants to have consciousness. And, and that fits in with a concept that you favor when it comes to the nature of consciousness, the idea that all living things possess some level of consciousness. That, that view is known as panpsychism. Do you think that these sorts of experiments looking at the uh, activity of plants, for example, can provide solid evidence of non-human or even non-animal consciousness? Not solid evidence. What they can provide is that plants respond much more adaptive. So first of all, what they've shown that plants have some sort of le simple learning mechanisms, all right, associative conditioning mechanisms that, you know, of the sort that Pavlov discovered, you know, in his dogs with, uh, with his famous experiment with the food and the bell. 
so that tells us that plants and trees can be more adaptive. They can do more things than we previously gave them credence for. That doesn't, of course, mean that they are conscious because I can do many things unconsciously. Right? I can I can analyze very complicated linguistic utterances that you make, and I can respond correctly. I have no idea of what the rules of of English, the rules of grammar, what goes what, but I I can exactly tell you whether a sentence is grammatically correct or incorrect. So there's a lot of massive amount of unconscious processing in in all of our our brain. Ultimately, to, to have a theory that tells us are, are plants conscious, um, we need ultimately a theory that tells us in some fundamental um, uh, principled way which physical systems under what condition feel like something and which physical systems never feel like anything. We, 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 we need ultimately a theory. Because this inference, you know, as I said, works for you and me and, and, and you and maybe a baby or maybe a dog because they're all very similar. But even an octopus already, you know, if you've seen the movie My Teacher Octopus, it becomes a little bit more difficult because evolutionarily they're very different. They don't have sort of two, they, you know, they, they don't have fur. They don't have a tail that works. They don't have two eyes like us. So, you know, they, they are, their nervous system is quite different. So it's already much more challenging to, 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 to infer consciousness in them. And then when you come to organisms that are very different, like the plant, yes, it's possible that they feel like something, but to really know, ultimately, you need a theory that tells us exactly this is the physical condition under which a system, a physical system, feels like something. Now, nobody says, of course, that the plant feels like you and I. It doesn't have an internal voice. It's not self-conscious. The question is, does it feel like something when the tree is alive or the plant is alive? And then when it's dead, it doesn't feel like anything. So, it, it, you know, it, it's probably a very simple form of consciousness. You know, similar, you know, maybe like a bee or like a fly. Again, I think given the complexity of the brain of a bee, it very likely has some feelings. But the bee doesn't have psychology. It doesn't worry about the weekend. You know, it doesn't worry that it's obese. But it may be happy when it's just, you know, gotten some golden nectar and it's flying back home, you know, in the sun. We know it has some of the same neurotransmitters that, that, that we have. So it may just have a feeling of, 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 you know, of being content versus a feeling of something is missing when it's hungry or something like that. Mm -hmm. And when you're mentioning a theory, I know that you've talked about uh, something called integrated information theory that, uh, again, tries to quantify the complexity of a system and the self-referential nature of a system and tries to look at that as a potential uh, indication of a level of consciousness. Uh, is that still something that you're uh, working on? Have there been developments in integrated information theory that have kind of changed change the direction? Yeah, so uh, uh, you're entirely correct. So I think we do have a good candidate theory of consciousness, as you mentioned, integrated information theory. It proceeds from by first principles, and, and essentially it relates consciousness to internal power. What it means, the ability of a system to determine its own state, to change its own state, like my brain. But other systems also have that in principle, um, um, uh, a complex, you know, if you look at all the biochemical events inside a single cell of vast complexity that no one has ever even tried to model because, you know, there, there are probably a few billion proteins of a thousand different types and they all interact in very complicated ways. That too may have some non-zero intrinsic causal power, so that too may feel like something. It does make some predictions and in fact, this conscious meter this idea is based on a, on a prediction by, um, by IIT. There's now a large-scale international collaboration called an adversarial collaboration 
that directly test the two dominant theories of consciousness. One is integrated information theory. The other one is called global neuronal workspace. And they directly test them, the prediction that the two different theories make about consciousness, where it is in the, in the human brain and in the brains of uh, non-human primates and in ma- and mice. So it's a, it's a large collaboration involving like 14 labs, and that's ongoing right now as we speak. Wow. Since this is the Fiction Science Podcast, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on a few of the many books and movies that have sparked speculation about the nature of consciousness. For example, there's a new Matrix movie coming out this year. In the past, we've talked about other movies, including Lucy, Transcendence, Inside Out. There's also the recent novel by Seattle science fiction writer uh, Neil Stevenson called Fall or Dodge in Hell. Do you have any favorite fictional treatments of the mechanics of consciousness, or are there any works you'd like to mention that are deliciously bad? No, I mean, the good ones is Blade Runner, Ex Machina. Uh, Ex Machina is probably my favorite one. Matrix, uh, of course, that's based on a previous movie called Dark Dark City. Um, Yeah, Common among all of them. So, for example, if we take if we take Neo, sort of as you know, Jesus, cyberpunk Jesus, right? Effectively, <laughs> he might. So, what's interesting there is sort of it's really he has an insight that Rene Descartes first had, you know, four hundred fifty years ago. Um, he said famously, "Cogito ergo sum," I'm conscious, therefore I exist. So, um, a Neo can be mistaken about who he thinks he is. Right? He believes he's a He's, he's an American living in late-stage capitalism in some city, you know, unspecified city in America, while in reality, it shows in the first movie, right, he's stacked like a, this in this gigantic warehouse and used by the machines as a double-D battery, right? But what, what he's not mistaken that he exists because he's conscious. So he might be deluding himself about what he's conscious of. And René Descartes speaks about that. He he calls it the evil deceiver. Today we call it the superintelligence or the machines or whatever, the aliens. Um, they, they, they might deceive me what I'm conscious of, that I, I think I'm beautiful, but in fact, most people don't, don't experience me as beautiful. Yet, what I cannot be confused about that I exist because I am conscious. That's the central insight of, of René Descartes. So that is the one thing that cannot be doubted, that I exist because I'm conscious. And so that's what I come back to. Any This is the, the great challenge. How this central fact of my life, of all of our lives, that we exist because we're conscious, how can that be explained? And so that that point is made very well in um, in the Matrix and also in Ex Machina, and mm-hmm. also in Blade Runner, in all of these movies. You've referred to uh, the idea of the Matrix and and uh, perhaps the circumstances of our consciousness are different from what we perceive. And there's this idea that we're actually just part of a big computer simulation of some sort. Uh, there's an Amazon Prime series called Upload, and the premise of that series is that conscious minds can be taken apart and uploaded into a virtual world to survive after physical death. But in your view, uh, uploading our consciousness into computers can't be done. Maybe you could explain that and, and uh, what is true about this idea and why the central idea might not be quite correct. Okay, so so there are a number of issues here one has to discuss. One is, can a computer be conscious? Let's say a digital computer, okay? And according to IIT, it's well possible, and we're certainly on the way. You can ask Alexa, or you can ask Siri, or you can ask Lambda, the new chatbot by Google, which is very impressive. 
So sooner or later, certainly in the lifetime of the younger people listening to this, we'll get to software that is as smart and as intelligent as we are, you know, AGI, artificial general intelligence. And so in principle, you will be able to, to mimic anything a human can do, including creativity, including writing books and, you know, painting and doing other all the other things that we believe is unique to us. Okay, and you can see it, for example, in Go, in this, in game number six, you know, in the in the in the famous Go uh, series uh, of AlphaGo against Lee Sedol, you know, the the, the AlphaGo had this um, had this one move that surprised everybody, and everyone says, "Wow, that's really creative." So you can get creativity too, but that's a different. But so, so the question is, if 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 they can be as intelligent like us, don't they also share our consciousness? And he, this is where IT differs. You can simulate the behavior associated with consciousness. There's no question about it. But that doesn't mean you have the same causal power. Just like you can simulate the gravity associated with the black hole. But funny enough, you don't have to be concerned that you're going to be sucked into the, the gravitation you know, that's being simulated by the software running on your laptop, right? No one has to be concerned. Oh, I'm going to simulate a black hole. Gee, shouldn't I worry that it's going to suck? That, is, that this simulated black hole has so much... Uh, attraction on space-time is going to bend space-time around my my laptop? No, because we say it's just a computer simulation. Same thing with consciousness. And it can show this rigorously. So if the theory is true, it says on a digital computer, you cannot simulate, you can't program uh, consciousness. You could build it. Clearly, there's nothing magical and supernatural about consciousness. But but you then you need to build the same structures that you have in the brain, like neuromorphic computers, um, then you could then you could build a computer that would have consciousness. So that's one issue. So the the second issue is um, well, at least any conceivable technique for cutting your brain, getting the what's called the connectome, the sum of all the connections of of let's see my or your brain, and then simulating that in a computer is is destructive. And right now we have no technology even on the horizon that would be that would be non-destructive. So yes, maybe I can, uh, you know, I can sacrifice myself, and then I get my brain gets cut into these tiny ten nanometer little slices, and you know, um, I can simulate that in a future computer, let's say a quantum computer, and I can simulate that, of course. But then I'm dead. So me, I'm dead. Yes, you can simulate something that looks like me, but that's not me. I'm sorry, but simply, it's like having a twin brother. When you have two identical twins and one of them dies, well, that that lifeline is cut off. You know, you you, you you can imagine yourself living vicariously through your twin brother, but that's not you. And then, like, and and then, and then, thirdly, it's this issue of, of personality. So even if you could overcome all of that, uh, and even if you could simulate computer on a, uh, if you could, if you could simulate conscience on a computer again, then you have an, another entity, but that's not you. That's mm. simply not you. So the this belief, which really reminds, it's rapture for nerds. <laughs> People said, you know, throughout history, they want to escape death, right? Because the, the thought of personal annihilation is just terrifying. And so they build gigantic pyramids, right? If you're rich enough in a pharaoh, or today we imagine we can upload ourselves. It's all driven by the same uh, impulse to escape death. I think that this, you can't do it. Yes, you could create something that could last for a long time, but it wouldn't be you. It might look like you, it might talk like you, but that's very different. That's not me. That's not my consciousness. It's somebody else's consciousness that might share a lot of traits with me, but it's not me. Yes. Uh, speaking of mortality, uh, you're just on the brink of your 65th birthday. 
How much of this mystery of consciousness do you think will be revealed during your lifetime? Well, I mean, experiments are slow. Uh, you know, as I said, we, we, we're making progress, things like conscious media, but it's slow. So, I mean, I realize, and you realize this, you know, if you're a scientist, that it's, you know, you, 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 you stand on the shoulders of giants and it's a, you know, it's a generational project you know, to, to illuminate the darkness in the world and try to understand in a rational way of the place that, that we and humans and I in particular occupy, occupy in the universe. It's something very humbling. You know, you're never going to see it through because unfortunately you, you don't live long enough. But that is the mission I've, I've, I've chosen for my own life. What's the number one question that you'd like to have answered, uh, either as a scientist or just for your personal gratification? <laughs> are, there, is there, are, are there other intelligences out there? I mean, human-like, not just bugs, but, you know, intelligences out there. I mean, probabilistic, it's overwhelmingly yes, but I would like to see, you know, Oumuamua, you know, it's Oumuamua. Did it, you know, did it come from, I don't know where it came from. And he said, really an artifact of, uh, of extraterrestrial intelligence, it would be nice to have some certainty because that would dramatically change the discussion on planet Earth. If we had incontrovertible evidence, I mean, you see it very well how it's described in Contact, the, the, the movie based on the book by Carl Sagan, right? If we had incontrovertible evidence, that voice from the sky, uh, that, that there is at least one other advanced intelligence, whether it's biologically evolved or computers, artificial, whatever, I think it would make a huge difference because suddenly we realize, oh, we're not alone. And, you know, we are maybe one out of a billion or trillion different um, different planets with life on it. If I were a genie, I would definitely try to make your wish come true because I would love to see that myself. Thanks for being with us. And I'm looking forward to the movie and looking forward to your next project. Thank you very much, Alan. For more about Christoph Koch and his perspective on consciousness, including more of his book and movie recommendations, check out my Cosmic Log posting at fictionscienceclub.com. You'll also find links to more information about AWARE, Glimpses of Consciousness, which will be shown during a special on-demand streaming event on November 10th and will air on PBS next April as part of Public Television's Independent Lens series. I'd like to thank Christoph Koch and the folks at Umbrella Films, Area 23A, and the 2050 Group for setting up the interview, and thank James Emley for his rendition of the Cosmic Log theme, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to the Fiction Science Podcast, and feel free to give us a stellar rating on your favorite podcast channel. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.